0: Hi there, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. My name is Shane Phillips and I run the housing initiative for the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. And my co-host is Dr. Michael Lenz, Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Public Policy and Associate Faculty Director of the Lewis Center. On this podcast, we try to translate the arcane world of academia and peer-reviewed articles into something a little more accessible and explore with our guests how their work might be translated into policy, and practice to make cities more affordable and equitable. Today, Dr. Lenz and I are joined by our faculty colleague, Dr. Mike Manbill, and we're talking about parking and land use. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks for having me. Last time when we had Pavo on, he said I was a little too formal with my introduction, so I'm just keeping it loose here.
1: Keep it loose, I just want to reiterate
0: that I misunderstood, and I did
1: wear a Zoom shirt. (laughs) Yep, just audio. I want the listener to picture me in very professional attire.
0: Today, we'll be talking about a paper titled, Parking Behavior, Bundled Parking, and Travel Behavior in American Cities, authored by Dr. Manville and Miriam Pinsky, a doctoral student here at UCLA. But we'll actually be touching on a few parking-related papers that Mike has published over the years. And if I can start off this episode by making it all about me, Mm -hmm. I actually came to the field of urban planning through an interest in transportation. But over the years, I've sort of gravitated more and more toward housing policy. And the line I give on why I made that shift is that it's hard to really get anything in our cities right, including transportation, if you don't have the right land use and housing policy in place. And parking is a It's a really interesting policy area because it's transportation policy that's sort of mediated through land use policy. It's not cities or state governments that provide most parking, um, unlike roads and trains and buses and so forth, it's developers. Um, And in most places, our local governments do tell developers how much parking to build. Before we get into the details on what bundled and unbundled parking is and why that matters, Mike, could you just give us a little, just give us a general overview on what we know about parking and the impact that policies like minimum parking requirements have on cities and residents? Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of like what you said in that it occupies a a very large, but for a long time kind of neglected space between transportation planning and land use planning. And, And Donald Choup, who is our colleague, who is sort of the uh, the, the, the original guru of, of parking studies.
0: The dawn, if you will.
1: Yes, the dawn of parking studies. Um, he's always liked to say that the parking was neglected for so long because uh, each faction uh, decided the other was the one responsible for thinking about it. So the land use people thought it was a transportation problem and the transportation people thought it was a land use problem. And so for a long time, uh, it went sort of unstudied despite its very large impacts and as you said, parking is sort of uh, unique among transportation infrastructure for not being something the public provides. You know, like you said, the, the, the government builds roads, it builds trains, it, it provides buses and parking is, especially off-street parking, is uh, publicly mandated, but privately supplied. So when a developer goes to build something in virtually every part of every city in the country, there's a few exceptions we can talk about, uh, but they really are exceptions, one of the first things they have to do is figure out how they're going to fit the off-street parking that's required. Mm -hmm. And so if you ever are in our home city of LA or or almost anywhere else, and you walk down the street past uh, the beginnings of an infill housing project, for instance, what you'll see more often than not is uh, a hole that is uh, far too large than to explain, far too large for it to be able to explain the the four-story building that's about to go above it. Right, And what's happened is there's a parking requirement attached to that building. And so before you build up your four stories, maybe you have to dig down two stories. Or before you uh, go up 10 stories, you have to dig down six stories to provide the, uh, the parking that the zoning code says any housing unit has to come with. And the same rules apply to commercial development and industrial development and so on. There's um, The zoning code is very clear that almost anything you build you need to have a certain amount of parking along with it on the same site. Right. Even a bar. Right. And <laughs> right. Even things that we, we think, you know, <laughs> that maybe it be for the best that people weren't driving to. Um, you need to have ample parking. Right. Um, what this, this does two things. On the development side, it just makes it a lot harder to build a lot of things, right? Because the parking is either going to eat up a bunch of money if you have to go underground. Or it's going to eat up a lot of space if you want to like try and keep it with a surface parking lot. And anyone who's ever wondered why we have so many strip malls, the answer is just that a strip mall is the easiest way to comply with a three space per thousand
0: square foot commercial parking requirement. And the other answer is Proposition U, which someday we will talk about.
1: (laughs) In LA, it will be Proposition U. But as as it turns out, strip malls do not exist only in LA.
0: Correct, right.
1: That that you know, if you if you have this parcel of land and you've got to build, uh, you want to build a store on it, but you also have to fit the parking. It just turns out that the best way to do that, to minimize the amount of space that you would have for driveways or things like that, is to just slap the parking in the front and then make uh, whatever you have left over into the store. And I think that's a good example of how the parking requirement changes the city because what that does is that that's the individually rational thing for the developer to do to comply with this requirement. What it adds up to when everyone is doing something like that is a city that collectively all of us aren't that thrilled about. Almost no one that I'm aware of like loves strip malls, right? No one that I know really likes the fact that even in a walkable neighborhood of Los Angeles, every 50 feet, you have to keep your eyes open because there's a curb cut because a car might come sliding out of a building uh, as you're walking along because what it does is it, it makes it easier for you to access that building by car uh, and it makes it much more difficult to access it any way else. Right? So now it's a, if you were to walk to that strip mall um, you're going to, you're going to be walking along a sidewalk that is unappealing because on one side you have the street and on the other side you have a parking lot and, and every few feet, there's going to be a driveway where someone might run you over and then to get to the store, you have to walk through the parking lot, right? Which is also not very attractive. And on, on a sunny day, it's very hot. And again, someone might back over you and you really, the things that make streetscapes really nice in Manhattan or downtown Boston or things like that, which is that the building comes right up to the sidewalk and you can see in the windows and you're like, oh yeah, maybe I'll go in there. I mean, all of that is is much less possible. And, and so we advertise instead with these big garish signs that you can see from a car. Um, and so it, it ends up dictating an automobile-friendly built environment. And that automobile-friendly built environment is also, by extension, an environment that's hostile to walking and bicycling and using public transportation. And so that's on the development side. And then on the, the transportation side, what you get is just a very quiet but large subsidy to driving, in the sense that if you think about the components of a transportation system, you can usually break it down into three of them. There's uh, the cost of your vehicles, right? That's like, in this case, buying a car or, or, or paying for a bus fare or something. Um, there's the cost of your routes, which are the roads. And then there's what are called terminal costs or the cost of uh, storing the vehicle when it's not in use. And what makes cars so much different from almost every other transportation system is that in order for us to get the full potential out of them, uh, their terminal costs have to be enormous. And what I mean by that is that what made the car so appealing when it first came out, and what makes it still so appealing, is that unlike with a train or an airplane or whatever, um, you can just go wherever you want, whenever you want, right? You don't have to wait until a bunch of other people want to get on this vehicle and go from point A to point B, right? Which is the nature of uh, traveling by train or traveling by airplane. And the fact that you're constrained that way with trains and airplanes means that they actually don't have to. Uh, keep their vehicles idle for very long. But what, what the car offered was like, I don't want to wait for when the train's coming. And I don't want to go just where these other people are going. I can get in my car and go wherever I want. But what that implies, though, is that whenever you get there, there has to be a place for you to leave the car. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the, the, the car had these enormous terminal costs compared to other forms of transportation. And that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. What becomes a bad thing is when the city government decides that drivers shouldn't have to pay for those, right? Because when you think about it, and this is a point that Don Shoup makes all the time, the typical car most of the time isn't moving, right? The, 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 biggest, the biggest imposition it makes normally is just taking up space while, while someone's off doing something else. And if drivers really had to pay for that imposition of space, we would all drive a lot less and we don't have fewer cars And what a minimum parking requirement does to circle all the way back to this question you originally asked, right? Is it takes that terminal cost of driving, right? Which should be, if you just think about it in the the logical order of things, it should be the last cost a driver pays, a a cost the driver pays at the end of their trip. And it turns it into a cost that a developer pays at the beginning of their project. It takes one of the largest costs of the transportation system and dumps it into the cost of housing into the cost of developing commercial property and so forth. And so as a result, in a world where these these laws are ubiquitous, development becomes a little more expensive and driving is at least perceived as being much less expensive because your decision to drive doesn't affect your parking
0: costs because the parking costs are buried in everything else. Which is why we see people driving less often in the places where parking is most expensive.
1: Absolutely,
0: yeah. Yeah. And you know, a a number that this just made me think of uh, that I think it was some of our colleagues, including Juan Matute, who came up with this a few years ago. They tallied up all the parking spaces in LA County and it came to about 19 million spaces, which is, you know, two per person, something like three per driver. And at about 300, 350 square feet per person, we're talking about a thousand square feet. I think this is only off-street parking per driver. And so we have the system where like, we talk about housing being a human right, but the only thing we actually mandate is parking. Whereas if we don't build housing, kind of no big deal. Um, I, I would I would guess that we're probably providing more parking space per person in this county than we are living space at this point. You think we have a thousand square feet per person of living space? I do not. Uh,
2: but like housing for cars is a human right. That That's what we're... We've achieved that, yes. How's, housing for
1: cars is a human right. That's that's my new nonprofit. Um, <laughs> I want to interject with
2: my non-muffled sounds. Yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, Mike Manville and Donald Shoup are are, are kind of superhuman in their ability to create fascinating ten-minute monologues about parking. Um, <laughs> this was a bunch of stuff that I already knew because I've spent ten years with Donald Shoup and I've spent. Uh, you know, multiple years with Michael Manville and I'm just captivated staring at my screen, listening to the guy talk about the parking stuff that I, I already knew and I love. And I thought of an anecdote, which might get us a sponsorship opportunity <laughs> uh, cost plus market on, on Westwood and Santa Monica is, is a fascinating case study for me. And um, for those who are running cost plus, please consider us in our, in your uh, sponsorship. And so I walk or run by this cost plus somewhat frequently. And you know, the the parking is in the back, the entrance, the entrance is off of Santa Monica, right? Like, and then on Santa Monica, up, up to the sidewalk, they don't have windows where you could see in to like what the wares are because they don't expect that anyone's looking through the windows. They just, but they have like a painting of stuff that they might have. Which is which is even weirder to me. It's so so. I guess that's to catch the eye of the people driving by at forty miles an hour or stuck in traffic, more likely.
0: This doesn't sound like uh, like a, you're complimenting them right now. To be honest, I'm not. I'm not sure they're going to be interested in sponsoring. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so uh, but but it, it's a great example, and you do see this throughout Los Angeles, where and it, it doesn't. There's nothing strictly speaking in the parking requirement that that says you have to have, you know, a, a completely hostile um, street-facing architecture. But because it just becomes the norm, all of the amenities, all the things that would, would appeal to you are instead from the parking lot. Yep. And it becomes very easy to neglect the street. And so you do, and I think uh, simple tweaks can can fix this. You can I mean, the, the, the tweak that we will talk about most, I think, is getting rid of these minimum parking requirements. But city planning can also just say, like, you know, you can't have a, a barren wall on the sidewalk or you need to have a certain number of windows or you, you need to have an entrance or something like that. Um, because what happens is that when everybody sort of internalizes this norm that, of course, no one is going to actually enter a shop from the street by foot, they just don't invest in, in that sort of infrastructure.
0: Right. And to give credit to the city of Los Angeles, I do think they're moving in that direction of not allowing these blank walls and that kind of thing. So let's get into the papers. And they're both about bundled parking. So it probably makes sense to define that first. And I'm going to try out the definition here based on on what I read. And you can let me know if this sounds correct. So a home has bundled parking if at least one parking space is included in the rent. Or if the home is owned and there's parking included in the purchase price. Mm-hmm. And by your definition, the parking can be in a garage or a carport or any other off street location as long as it's included in the rent or purchase price of the home. And then parking is unbundled if it's paid for separately from rent um, or the purchase price. And that could actually mean that it's a space in a garage somewhere off site and costs you $100 a month or on site for that matter, but it costs you something. Or it could just mean that there's no off-street parking provided at all. Is that a fair definition?
1: That's right. And I think in, in part of that definition is
0: an artifact of the data we use. That um, in, in, in
1: this paper that we're primarily talking about and in one of the earlier ones that is sort of the companion to it, the, the data set is the American Housing Survey, which is a very nice data set that tracks uh, the condition of uh, the American housing stock both across the U.S. but also over time. And they, um, in, in a perfect world, you would be able to, to divide parking into three categories. Like you, you have parking and it comes with your house, your house payment. You have parking, but it doesn't come with your house payment. Or you don't have parking at all. And unfortunately, the American Housing Survey
0: runs those last two together. Gotcha. Okay. And I'll just give the name of that other paper because we are going to talk about some of the findings from it as well. This one's from 2017 and it's called Bundled Parking and Vehicle Ownership evidence from the American Housing Survey. And so from these two papers, I think there are two main takeaways. First, from the earlier paper, is that households with bundled parking are more likely to own cars than households with unbundled parking, including no parking. And then second, from this later paper, is that even when both types of households, bundled or unbundled parking, have cars, um, the ones with bundled parking drive a lot more and use transit a lot less. Can you talk about why unbundling parking affects car ownership and driving and transit use in that way, and give us a sense for sort of how big the impact is? What you found in these papers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, one—it's an extension of what I was mentioning earlier about sort of the shifting the costs, some of the costs of owning a car away from the the driver or away from the act of driving. So, if you move into an apartment building. Uh, and the, the landlord says, hey, you know, with your rent payment, you get a parking space in the basement. That is a, that's in a, in a subtle but real way, that's very different from if you move into a, a, a similar apartment building, the landlord says, look, we actually have no parking. Um, so you can, you know, there's a place at the end of the street where you could rent a space. I think it's about $150 a month or parking on the street. You know, it's kind of a hassle, but it's not too bad, right? And so mm-hmm. for most people, that decision is not going, you know, th- that difference is not going to lead to a meaningful difference in car ownership. But at any given time, there's probably someone who is kind of on the margin of owning a car or not right They're They're deciding, they don't have one, they're deciding if they're going to get one um, or, or their old one is running down and they were deciding if they wanted to replace it. And if you move into one of those places that doesn't come with parking and so, part, and so for, for you to store your car is going to be either a, a visible extra expense or, or a potential hassle because you're always going to have to find street parking. That's a condition where you might just say, you know what, I'm uh, you know, weighing all the other things going on. I actually don't need this car. Mm-hmm. Right. And so one thing that another way to look at this is that having the bundled parking, which I, I full disclosure, I, I have bundled parking right now. Um, my car, <laughs> my, my apartment comes with a space in my basement. And what that does to me is it reduces, as an economist would say, it reduces the opportunity cost of owning a car, right? Because if I decide not to own my car, my rent doesn't go down because the cost of that parking space is just in my rent. Whereas if I have bundled parking, um, I'm unbundled parking, excuse me, and I paid an extra $200 a month for my parking space, at some point I might say, you know what? I don't don't really use this car that much. I could just save $200 a month and put it towards something else. So Mm -hmm. without that incentive... I will just continue to unthinkingly own a car. And if I had that incentive, uh, I, I might choose to get rid of it. So that's, that's the ownership component. The second, the second thing, which is what Miriam and I studied was, let's say I have my car and, my, and my, it's in my bundled parking spot in the basement, but my neighbor across the way in the same building doesn't have parking in my building. And so she parks on the street. Uh, you could reasonably expect in a neighborhood like mine in West Hollywood that I'll drive more than she will and that she'll use the bus more than I will because whenever I go out in my car, uh, one thing I know is that when I get back home, it's not gonna be a problem for me to park. For my neighbor, she'll go out to the same place maybe, and when she gets home, maybe she'll luck out and find a street spot, but this is West Hollywood, maybe she'll have to drive around the block a few times, Mm -hmm. maybe she'll have to park two blocks away, and that, that makes that trip less convenient. It also makes her next trip less convenient right? Because if she has to park two blocks away, that means when she goes out again, she's got to walk back. And so what Miriam and I hypothesized was that even controlling for car ownership, I might, you know, the, a person who has unbundled parking might drive less. Mike Lenz has his hand up, which our viewers can't yeah, say. I,
2: I, was just, I was just stating that I would like to jump in whenever Mandel's done with these amazing thoughts. So here's my question, Dr. Mandel. Why do you want yeah. to make it so hard on your neighbor to park? What's wrong with What's wrong with human right to parking? So I think that the, there's
1: two things that, that go on, right? There's, there, I don't want to make it hard for my neighbor to park. But I do want to make sure that when people park, they pay for their own parking. And when people don't park, they don't pay for other people's parking, right? So what I mean by that is that, and so it's if my neighbor uh, wants a parking space, you know there should be a way for her to get one. But the, the way that we do it now is that there are many people who live in buildings that come with bundled parking and they don't have a car. And those people needlessly pay uh, for parking they don't want or use. Um, and then we have a situation where uh, someone like my hypothetical neighbor uh, might like to park and would benefit from being able to rent a space somewhere perhaps and that you know, this is a, this is another thing that we don't talk about as much in the paper. The the potential for that sort of market is suppressed by the fact that so many buildings have their own parking, right? That that it doesn't um, it doesn't make sense for someone to 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 rent out parking spaces in in a neighborhood where every building that gets built comes with its own sort of underground parking. And so, and then then of course, there's just the fact that. You know there are there are real costs associated with excessive automobility, right? That that one of the biggest predictors of driving is again, you know, your ease of of parking at the end. And so if we want to get some sort of handle on uh, our driving issues, one way to do so is to sort of make the costs and uh, costs and benefits uh, of parking more transparent.
2: So we're, we're misallocating space because we're not we're we're not getting people to like pay for what they are actually using by bundling it into the price of of housing and then of course there's this this tricky issue where excessive driving might be a bad thing for the planet our ability to get around via other means etc
1: yeah i mean one maybe one way to put this more succinctly would just be if you look at the the goals of almost any city planning agency, especially in in places like LA or up and down the coast, I mean, you'll see some language to the effect of, we want to uh, embrace sustainability and have people drive less, use transit more, um, and we want to uh, make housing more affordable. And because bundling is basically a product of these minimum parking requirements, what it does is the opposite. Right. It makes housing more expensive and driving less expensive and, and transit less appealing. And so I think that in some ways, when we study bundling, it's, it's not that we have some big problem with a landlord saying, oh, you know what, I, I'm going to I just think everybody who wants to move into this building is going to want parking anyways. And so I'm going to bundle it. Right. That's a perfectly fine judgment to make. But that judgment alone would not explain why over 90 percent of the housing units in the country have bundled parking right, that the main reason over 90% of the housing units in the country have bundled parking is that the the zoning laws often force developers to oversupply parking, right, and it would be very hard to sell it um, on its own with with, with so much parking attached to every building.
2: Right. Do we know why minimum parking requirements became such a widespread zoning tool and mandate? Yeah, I mean, they were the easiest way
1: or the, the seemingly easiest way to solve a problem that arose as more and more people started to buy cars, which was um, competition for curb parking, right? So if you look at, uh, you know, if you imagine one of the older neighborhoods in LA that was already developed at the time that people started to just buy more and more automobiles, what those folks started to notice was that the the spaces on their curbs started to fill up, right? And because everyone treats the, the street in front of their house as kind of their private property, this was an outrage. So if you were just looking at this from the, the perspective of a, you know, omniscient central planner, the obvious thing to do would say, be said, oh, well, this is a valuable public space um, that is now becoming uh, more in demand. And so, you know, it's been nice that up to this point, we've been able to give it away for free, but those days are over. Uh, so now we're going to start charging for it.
0: That not, does not go not over. what happened
1: not what happened. And so in a time-honored tradition of of planners and governments everywhere, uh, they decided to protect their incumbent residents uh, and and push costs onto newcomers. And so they solved, quote unquote, the problem of congested street parking by saying that anything new that was built, its price of entry would be to build enough off-street parking so that it wouldn't congest the curb. And of course, this didn't work. The curb still gets congested, but uh, now we have off-street parking requirements everywhere.
0: Hooray! I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit here since we started talking about um, the costs of this and, and pricing and so forth. I think there are already some policies in parts of the country, maybe even in parts of the city of LA, that require unbundling, or I think we're kind of moving in that direction. But I've I've never been entirely clear on exactly how those work so like Mm -hmm. looking at this from the perspective of of a developer say you have a single space in a garage that costs like forty thousand dollars to build so the developer needs to charge about two hundred dollars a month just to break even on that right but most people in most places are not actually willing to pay that much they think that's too much to pay for parking even though they're paying for it right now bundled into their rent so you build this building, you have the minimum parking requirements, you have to unbundle the cost and you're charging $200 per space. And so the rents in the units are actually lower. You might attract a whole bunch of people who don't have cars and don't want that parking space. So they're paying less and the developer is making no revenue on their garage. It, it seems like you 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 force them into this impossible situation where you're just you're forcing them to attract people who don't want parking space, but you're still requiring them to build the parking space, and so they get no revenue for it. So, how do we get out of that trap, or ha- have we already successfully done so somewhere? And I just don't know. You know the success stories that have happened already.
1: Yeah. So th- those are great questions. There's a lot there, and and in before I answer that, I should realize I didn't fully answer your last question, um, which is just like, what did we find when we looked at this? Because <laughs> the finding sort of determines why we might. Want yeah. To do yeah. This. We
0: could start. So we'll just start and say, like, you know, what was the what was the scale of the impact? How how different were the outcomes for people who had bundled versus unbundled parking and the amount of driving that they do and the amount of transit that they use?
1: So taken together, the impact
0: of bundled
1: parking is pretty substantial. And I'm going to not quite remember the exact proportions here, but basically. P- households that had a uh, bundled parking were about 60%, I think, less likely to be carless than households that had unbundled parking. And then there, there's very noticeable differences um, once you control for a bunch of other things, like, you know, are you in a central city and, and stuff like that? Uh, what kind of neighborhood you're in, in the propensity to use transit. And the, there is, uh, you know, we, we have kind of rough proxies for the amount of driving, sort of like how much you spend on gasoline and things like that but the the short version of this, and I encourage anyone to to look at the paper for the more detailed stuff with some of the caveats, is that most of the impact you see comes from this um, subtle encouragement toward vehicle ownership right That's the big one but that you know and this is what Miriam and I found is that even controlling for vehicle ownership, you do notice this difference in travel behavior and it, it it's uh and that seems to be a product of the hassle of. You know, finding parking if you don't have it at home, right? So, so we just noticed that people who have bundled parking they're less likely to ride the bus, less likely to ride a subway or a light rail, not less likely um, to ride commuter rail, which makes sense because commuter rail is often a park and ride uh, situation, and and also that they are uh, they, they spend more on gasoline. And there was one other finding that I wanted to highlight. I don't remember what it is, but i will come back to it. But so, um, so, so it really is. It does seem to have uh, a causal effect on travel behavior, and you know, I we can talk more about how I know or why I think it's a causal effect. I guess I don't know what it is, but but to your question about how you would go about unbundling, and I think this is this is an important point. You know, we study bundled parking in part because the data let us see it. Uh, And and we do see that the bundled parking has what I think from a society's perspective are adverse effects. The solution to this is not to mandate unbundling, Mm -hmm. because if you mandate unbundling and continue to require the parking supply to continuously rise with all development, uh, you are undermining the market that would sort of exist in an unbundled state. Right. So it, to go back to the example you gave, yeah, uh, if my landlord right now just like was hit with a law saying he had to unbundle all the parking, well, the first thing he could do was go to everybody who's currently, rent, you know, has a parking space for him and say like, hey, can I can I sell you this for, you know, even Steven, you know, I'll take 200 off the rent and add 200 to your parking. Um, and if that works out, that's great. But if it doesn't, now he's in a, he's in a, a pickle because who's he going to rent it to? Right. Right. The building across the street has their own parking. The building next door has their own parking. Up and down the, the street, everybody's got a parking space. And so even if someone, you know, if even if it is there is someone and there are people on my street who just are parking on the street right now and we're willing to rent a space. Do they want to rent a space underneath someone else's building? And if they do how do we enable them to get in and out of my building to the satisfaction of the insurance company? Right. Even because they're not like a leaseholder there. And, and so it's not that these problems are insoluble, but they're a giant headache. And as long as parking is kind of everywhere, they're not a headache that's worth anyone's time. Mm -hmm. Now, if parking is scarce right, then it becomes worthwhile to figure out a way for you to start selling it separate from a residence or separate from your business. And so where we see unbundled parking work are places where it develops organically uh, because there's just not much parking, right? Like if you're a person who owns a building that happens to have a, a decent sized parking lot, in a neighborhood where there really isn't a lot of parking already, maybe there's just a lot of historic buildings or something, um, chances are the city doesn't have to come tell you to unbundle that parking. Like if, if you just need some cash, you can look around and be like, I bet I could rent these spaces, right? And uh, you know we can all probably think of examples where that happens. But if you're in a neighborhood where every building has parking attached to it, or has worse yet has parking underneath it, then just passing a law that says suddenly this has to be sold separately uh, at best won't change anything and at worst is going to suddenly leave developers or or property owners um carrying the bag for a bunch of stuff that you know wouldn't exist if the city hadn't ordered it into existence anyways
0: mm-hmm. and going back to the the sort of skepticism that that lens shared earlier about who this impacts and everything it seems like there's and this is just with parking generally Like we have a transition problem. All of us here are pretty convinced that, you know, getting rid of parking minimums would be a good thing, but there's still a lot of opponents of this and parking availability is often one of the first things that comes up when people oppose a projects or, or they're very opposed to lowering the amount of parking that's provided. And we can point to work like the work you've done that shows that parking actually increases the odds of new residents owning cars and how much they drive. And uh, that's especially true when the cost is bundled into the rent or purchase price. But it's also, I think, likely that if you build an apartment with limited or no parking, that you'll probably have more cars than parking spaces. And some of those cars will end up parked on the street. And I would say Mm -hmm. that's probably more true in LA than many other dense metro areas. And so getting back to this transition issue, we can see a future where car ownership isn't so essential in many parts of the city. But that's not really the reality now. And so in the meantime, as we grow, we're also likely to be adding more cars. And we've seen that over the past decades. That probably means more congestion, fewer available parking spaces on the street. What I've always struggled with, like I see the vision, I see that future where you, you have the choice to get around without a car and it's convenient and great. But we're not there now, and it sort of feels like on the way to getting there, things are actually going to get worse. Is that how you see things, or do you see kind of a different path for getting to that point?
1: Well, I mean, look, uh, I'm a I'm a planner, and so you know, you can't make an omelet without make breaking some eggs, (laughs) and uh, if if tens of thousands of people have to suffer in the short,
0: (laughs) okay, Amazon.
1: No, I mean, I I disagree. So. And I think the key thing to keep in mind here is that um, minimum parking requirements do a lot of harm. They bias a lot of decis- decisions in the wrong direction uh, and they, they allow us to avoid the real source of a lot of our transportation problems, which is uh, the mispricing of public space, right? Which is to say that, that we don't, we just, we give away literally the street space. Uh, you know, if I, uh, I live in West Hollywood, if I did not have, uh, an underground parking space, I could go to City Hall, uh, I could get a permit. That permit would let me park my car, uh, which which uh, cost when I bought it $20,000 on the street for free. That, that's a terrible system, <laughs> right? I mean, it's a, just imagine like if I would spent $20,000 on anything else, you know, a 110 a inch TV screen, uh, if I donated it to Oxfam, if I'd given it to a shelter on Skid Row, what would West Hollywood give me? Nothing. But if I buy a damn car, they'll let me use 200 square feet of their incredibly valuable real estate for nothing. Mm-hmm. If you wanna know like, what's at the heart of our transportation problem, it's the fact that we've forgotten conveniently that all that land that is our street and our parking spaces, that public land is actually real estate. And incredibly valuable and in, and in most cities it is the largest single source of real estate you know 20 percent of the land area of los angeles more probably in west hollywood and we don't want to confront the fact that we have created a terrible mess by trying to allocate it in any way except the way we allocate virtually all other land which is through crisis um, and one way we continue to dodge that problem is by just saying well you know uh whoever builds anything in our community has to, has to just make space so that we don't change the status quo of what's happening on our streets. And that being said, so, so one obvious thing that we have to do is that we have to take seriously the management of our street space. And, and I think that if we did that, we would find, as, as has often been the case, right, when we have used prices for goods that are in high demand in, in times when we previously did not, that, that messes that seemed terribly insoluble actually start to solve themselves, right? And I actually, the I'll, I'll put in a plug that I just put out a report through ITS, um, just sort of using as the extended analogy that this period of time in the 1970s where um, the US and its wisdom put p- price controls on gasoline, right, and, uh, and the result was that for a period of like, you know, three years, you couldn't get gas. Mm-hmm there were lines, there were like seven hour long lines to get gas, right? And people were just like, my God, like what could we possibly do? Like how will this ever, the New York Times was like, "The situation will never go back to normal. And then they just removed the price controls and I can get gas. And so it's, so one, you can just manage the street and no one's gonna be happy about that but it's not actually going, that's not gonna involve sort of like terrible suffering on anyone's part. And the other thing to remember is that when you remove a minimum parking requirement, I think there's a there's a tendency in some people's minds to to digest that as a ban on parking. Right? But but when you're all you do when you're removing a mandate, that's not the same as enacting a ban, right? What all you're saying, you're not telling a developer you can't build any parking. And so any developer it, as long as you think, and this is a weak assumption, that developers want to make money, that then the developer is going to look around at Los Angeles and say, this area where I'm building isn't quite ready for a building with absolutely no parking. But it's great that I have some flexibility about how I solve that problem, right? That rather than having to build a giant podium of parking under my building, uh, maybe I can put uh, 20 spaces on the ground floor and maybe I can figure out a way to lease some space down the street and, and, and then maybe some other stuff I can, you know, I can work out. And maybe there's some units I can sell without parking because some people really are willing to to fill a unit like that. And that's going to allow me to offer different types of products at different price points. And it's going to give me lots of flexibility.
0: How do you feel about, I kind of have mixed feelings about these kinds of proposals, but as I said, I think when you build those kinds of projects, if you build less parking, um, if you're not like really overbuilding, there's a chance that at different times, to some extent, you'll have people parking on the street, and so you know neighbors' concerns about curb parking availability will probably you know be borne out to some extent. Do you think it's reasonable to say, like, you know, we're going to limit the amount of street, we're, we're going to establish a street parking permit system, and this bu- these new buildings are only going to be permitted so many, so that they can't monopolize the street. It, it's not entirely fair necessarily, but is it like? Is it worth it if it solves the politics problem?
1: So, yeah, I mean, that those sorts of proposals, which I think, you know, there's some, there's also some debate about, you know, mm-hmm. when you get into the details of them, how legal they actually are in California. Um, but the, the the appeal of those, the appeal of the permit district and things like that lies entirely in can you move away from the most damaging part of this system, which is these minimum parking requirements that really drive up housing costs and drive up development costs. You know, the the residential permits, if you just step back and look at it again and, you know, and and don't wear the the goggles that we've all put on for the last 30 years, when the neighbor walks out and says, these new people are going to take up the street space, like the only really appropriate response from the city is, that space ain't yours. (laughs) It's ours, right? You've had a great ride parking for free on that space with no competition, but like all great rides come to an end. Like, thank you for pointing out that this is getting very crowded as it turns out, we need some revenue. We're going to slap a price on that. Um, now, no, no city council member in their right mind is ever going to say that. And so a nice midway point maybe is to say there's going to be some sort of permitting, but I would love to see the permits cost more. Mm -hmm. And I'd also, uh, you know, in, in there's parts of me that also would like to see them, um, in, in neighborhoods that are very busy, I'd like to see them explode, by which I mean uh you assign a permit to a resident. When that resident moves out, that permit goes away. Right. And the reason for that is just that if you do that, then you don't harm any incumbents, right? Like if you had, if you had a, a reserved parking space, you know, you're not uh you're, the city doesn't come take it away, but you would start to establish a system where whenever someone moves in, they don't move in with the presumption of a free parking space. Mm-hmm. So maybe you set up the system and you just distribute a bunch of permits um, but then when someone moves out and you'd have to carry you know uh, manage this carefully so people didn't sort of you didn't end up with a secondary market in permits or something maybe they'd be a new color i i, I um, think
0: i've seen that proposed it's like you, you really get to like economist brain when you get to that level where you're they're, they're yeah. basically proposing to issue these permits but also to allow people to auction them off so like you know, incumbent property owners can make a profit off of it, like they can benefit, even though it's not their property to benefit from, actually. But again, basically to pay them off to support more housing in the area.
1: Right. I mean, there is a large literature, and I have a, I do have, sort of going back to your point, I have a very modest contribution to it. I have a paper called Transition Costs and Transportation Reform, which deals with this, that you do have to buy your way with any subsidy system you that you want to get rid of, you have to buy your way up, right? People do not happily relinquish their subsidies. Mm-hmm. And so uh, some form of, you, you, there's very interesting proposals in that, that all of us should give more thought to of ways of devising permit systems that will slowly contract over time um, that either offer the kind of arbitrage opportunities you mentioned, Shane, or that are foolproof against them because, you know, if you if someone tried to sell off their old permit that was yellow, but the second generation per- permits are bright blue, then it'll be easy for enforcement officer to be like, uh, you know what, you're, you're busted. Mm. But yeah, I think that in the real world, um, you can't snap your fingers and just end this.
0: Do you have a, you know, have you seen any examples or cases that you you feel like have done this well? I mean, when we're when we're talking about solutions here, is it really? I mean, it sounds like the first and most important thing is just eliminating or at the very least reducing parking minimums. What's like the second thing?
2: I think
1: that if, you know, reducing the or removing the parking minimums and and removing is really the preferred thing here. That's what gives the most flexibility. I think it's just having some form of better street management. I think it's very hard to reduce the parking requirements or remove them um if the street is totally unmanaged because mm-hmm. then you, you know you run the risk of of a lot of spillover onto the street and so when downtown LA did the adaptive reuse ordinance and allowed a lot of buildings to go in with with little to no parking you know a sort of a less notice saving grace of that is just how hard it is to park on the street in downtown LA right. it's the streets are mostly metered from eight to eight uh and then they clean those streets almost every night so there's really no overnight parking and so that that regulated street that well regulated street allowed a deregulated housing supply mm-hmm. and and so i do think you need to pair the the removal the rolling back the minimums and this is this is classic sort of sheep wisdom i don't mean to be claiming this for myself you need to pair the removal of the minimums with something that lets you start regulating the street better and i don't think it's impossible but i think that it's Right now, there's no appeal to it for elected officials, right? Like most of the beneficiaries are people who don't live in these neighborhoods yet. I mean, it's much the same as almost anything that that, that would enable more housing, mm-hmm. right? You have a bunch of incumbents who think the way things are is fine, and they're your voters, and a bunch of people who would benefit who um, they're invisible, even to themselves right now. Right.
2: Well... This all sounds well and good, Professor Manville. But when you talk about eliminating subsidies, I start to worry about uh, the regressive effects or redistributive effects. Um, don't poor people need free parking? No, I don't think so. I, I, think, I think low-income
1: people need, I, I would go further. I know low-income people need money, right? Because they have a hard time affording a lot of things. But I don't think, and I think a lot of research into social policy backs me up on this, it is not a good way to help low-income people. uh, Let me rephrase that. Holding down the prices of some goods is not a good way to help low-income people, right? Like, I think the food stamp program is a very successful program that should be more generous, but it's very successful. Um, I think it works a lot better uh, than a program that would just put comprehensive price controls on food right? Or say that all food had to be free. And I think that same logic holds for parking, which is to say that there are some people who have a hard time paying for parking. Um, I would much rather find a way to help them pay for parking than to say that because of that, all the parking throughout our city has to be free. And I think for parking, the case is, is, is even more uh, powerful because, you know, most driving and most trips are done by people who are not low income. It's done by people who are affluent, right? And so, so most goods and services related to automobiles are consumed by higher income people. And so holding down the price of a good that is used disproportionately by high income people is, is not just an ineffective way to help low income people, but it's a, an incredibly self-serving way to help low income people, right? So I think one of the great problems we have in cities uh, or just in the U.S. in general, is that we, we, have, we pay a lot of lip service to helping low income people but we don't pay a lot of money, right? That, that we're very comfortable mandating this and that, like this price can't go up, or you have to provide this, or uh, you know, when someone builds a house, they have to build an affordable unit with it. And that's all well and good, but if you look at the scale of the problem and you look at the source of the problem, what we really need if we think this is important is to like dump a bunch of money into it. And again, I think that as long as we continue with uh, the, the, maybe this is too strong, but the fiction, that we can just solve this through regulations. I mean, we're never going to get serious about actually helping people with low incomes.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I have just one last question because I know we're running out of time here. Were there any questions that these papers, this research didn't resolve for you or that that came up as a result of it that you kind of want to follow up going forward?
2: Yeah, I
1: mean, I think um, the, the, the second paper with Miriam, I mean, we mentioned it. Unfortunately, there's only kind of a, a weak proxy for how much you actually drive. You know, we're able to establish very clearly that, you know, if you have this bundled parking and you own a car, you, you're definitely going to drive, ride transit less. But it would be nice to get better, a better sort of pairing uh, between sort of
0: that parking presence and like a real measure of how many miles you drive a year mm-hmm. or something like that. And in the paper, you, you basically just did like a proxy
1: yeah, it was gasoline expenditures, right. which yeah. is
0: not perfect, you know, because we don't know what kind of
1: car they have. Mm-hmm. Um, How so, much gas
0: costs. Yeah, all that stuff.
1: So, so that was a little bit tougher. Um, so I, I would like to revisit that. I think I really do think and, and I think Miriam would say the same, that the, the real contribution of that paper is much more the transit result. And the we present the, the driving the gasoline result more as like kind of food for thought and an area for future research. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Mandel. Thanks for having and me. And I'll see you in a meeting like tomorrow or something, probably. Most likely. <laughs> All right. Take care. <laughs> see you. That is a wrap on this episode of the UCLA Housing Voice podcast with your thoughtful, eloquent, and charming guest and co-hosts. As always, any papers or materials that we reference during the interview can be found in the show notes, and we always include our own notes used to prepare for the interviews on the website at lewis.ucla.edu. You can keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter at UCLA Lewis Center, and you can follow me on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips and Mike Lenz at MC underscore Lenz. We would be endlessly appreciative if you rated and reviewed the show on whatever platform you use to listen, and if you shared the podcast with your friends. Thanks again for listening. Bye.